Some people ask, what is RUF? I won't spend too much time talking about that, but if you go to belmont.ruf.org, um, we'll tell you. It stands for Reformed University Fellowship. And I'll just say this. One of the convictions of Christians who kind of rediscovered the gospel at the time of the Reformation was that God's grace is much bigger than a lot of Christians had thought for a long time. And so they, by reading the Bible, came to the conviction that we need to be reformed. We need to be remade. That the problem with our heart is deep. And it's not just superficial change that we need. We need to be reformed by God's grace. And one of the things that these people who came to be known as the reformers would say is that we need to be reformed and we continually need to be reformed. So the heart of what it means to be part of Reformed University Fellowship is that we are people who confess that we need God's grace not just to come into a relationship with God, but to live. We need it from the moment we're born to the moment we die. Um, and so that's, that's what we mean by that. University means that we consider the university a really important place. We consider your calling to be students important. We're not going to be telling you that you need to um, not study so that you can go to more Bible studies. We think you're, God has called you to be students. Um, and we think it's important that the church go to the university. So I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister, most of the people in the RUF aren't from that church background. That's fine. Don't, don't let that bug you. Um, but it means that the church has sent a seminary-trained person like me, and along with my wife, to be in your world. And I love it. I've been doing this for 15 years now at Belmont. Um, and, and I enjoy doing it and counted a great privilege to be able to meet with students. And one of my favorite things to do is to sit across a cup of coffee at Bongo Java and talk about the things that really matter. So if you ever want to take advantage of that, uh, I would love it. And then finally, fellowship. We think that community really matters. So when we spend a lot of time in the announcements talking about the various small groups, it's because we think small groups are really important. Um, now, for some of you coming out to REF Large Group, maybe something that you love doing, or maybe you come every once in a while, or maybe you'll come to some of our convos that we're going to do, or some of our social events, you can be involved at whatever level you want. But I would just tell you that if you really want to seek hard after Jesus, Getting together with a smaller group of people that you can walk together, share life together, pray for one another is really important. So we hope you'll take advantage of some of those opportunities, whether it's an RUF or somewhere else, because we think that's important for you. Um, we are going to study this semester the book of Romans, and we're not going to get through the whole book of Romans. I'll just tell you right now. Um, we're going to get through the first eight chapters, and there is a good kind of natural break at the end of that section. And so I want to read the passage that we're going to look at. Our, our real topic tonight is this idea, the good news of the gospel. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Greek word that's translated gospel in the Bible is a word that literally means good news. And yet what I found in working with college students now for many years is that often people who've been raised in church have lost sight of the fact that gospel means good news. They think of it more, like, for instance, if, if you ever are around people that talk about sharing the gospel with somebody, if you ask them what do they mean by that, generally what they'll tell you is, well, I you know, told this person a few things and then I invited them to open their heart to Jesus. In other words, their understanding of the gospel somehow has devolved from what the Bible means, good news about something God has done, it's turned into instruction about something we need to do. And for a lot of people, it's almost like the longer that you've been in Christian churches, the more joyless you become. Because you think that the chief way that you relate to God is by 
trying to figure out all the stuff you need to do and then trying your very best to do it. And then when you don't do it, you try to kind of crawl back to him and try and convince him that you're really, really sorry so he'll give you another chance. The book of Romans exposes all of that as a bunch of lies. It's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is first and foremost about good news that should bring great joy. And so that's what we're going to look at here um, tonight, the start of this in Romans chapter 1. Good news. What is the good news of the gospel? Why is that important to understand? Why is it good news? And, and, and what should it mean for the way you live your life? So if you have a Bible or if you have one of those passages that we handed out on the blue paper, uh, we're going to look at the first 17 verses of chapter 1 of Romans. If you don't know where Romans is in your Bible, you basically go through the Gospels and then Acts, and then you hit on it, Romans. Starts this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. We pray that you would open our hearts to behold wonderful, beautiful things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick background, though this is always the most boring part of any talk. Paul had never actually visited the church in Rome. He makes reference to that in the section that I just read. But he's longed to, to come to Rome. But he writes this letter to the Romans basically to, to tell them that he's planning to come. And at the very end of the letter, you find that he's anxious to preach the gospel over in Spain. And Rome is sort of like 
sort of the culmination of his kind of um, area in Asia and all this area he's been ministering to, and he wants to go to Spain. Um, we don't really know of, of very many like, particular problems he's addressing in the Church of Rome, though we do know that there is some tension between people who were from Jewish background who had become Christians and people who were not from Jewish background. The, the Bible calls them Gentiles. All right? That means anybody who's not from a Jewish background. And in this situation, we know from the book of Acts, which is a, a book that we have in the Bible that tells us about how the church spread after Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead. And it says in Acts that on the day of Pentecost, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, there were Jews from all over the place who were in Jerusalem when the Spirit fell on a bunch of Christians. And people there that day got converted to Christianity and went back to their home areas. And it mentions in Acts chapter 2 that some of those Jews were from Rome. So historians believe that the church in Rome began as a Jewish church, Jewish believers who became Christians, right? But we know that pretty soon after that, the Roman government kicked all the Jews out of Rome. And so the church became largely a non-Jewish church. And then about five years before Paul writes this letter, the Jews were allowed to go back to Rome. And so there is some tension among the, the believers there. In, in particular, some of the, the non-Jewish people are looking down upon the Jewish believers. So you'll find at times in this letter that Paul makes reference to what a great privilege and honor we have from the Jewish faith and how connected and rooted Christianity is in, in the Jewish understanding of God, right? So even at the very beginning, he says this in verse 2, that he's a servant of the gospel of God, the gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And he's saying, basically, I didn't just make this thing up. Christianity didn't really begin with Jesus, and it certainly wasn't invented by Paul. At least that's not Paul, uh, Paul's perspective at all. Christianity began with the revelation that God gave to his people through the Holy Scriptures, namely the Old Testament. Later in this same book, he's going to make reference to how this gospel that he's proclaiming is apart from law. In other words, you don't get righteousness with God by what you do, but this message that he's proclaiming is the message that the Old Testament prophets and law testify to. So Paul is wanting to say, this is, in, this is the culmination of what God has been teaching his people. Now, as we look at this this. this, uh, this letter this morning or this evening I can't talk about everything that's in these chapters even if we do two chapters or sort of two weeks on a chapter which is about the pace we're going to go we can't cover everything but I really want to focus on this idea of the gospel it appears a number of times here and the first thing we want to look at is this idea what is this good news when Paul uses this word gospel what you need to understand is in Paul's day that was not a religious word it was not a religious word I know that now, 2,000 years later, people associate the word gospel exclusively with Christianity and with religion, but that isn't what its context was in Paul's day. It's actually a pretty interesting word that he would choose to use in this letter. The word refers to the good news that is proclaimed generally from a military victory that is going to radically change the life of the people who hear the proclamation. Good news, euangelion is the Greek word, means the announcement of some great victory that's going to radically change the lives of everybody who hears about this victory. 
And that's really important for you to understand about what Christianity is. Christianity is first and foremost about something that really happened in real space and real time in real history. And it's good news of something that happened. Now, the way Paul talks about it here, he says it's God's gospel. It's God's good news. It's, it's the news about what he has done. And I think one of the most important things for us to understand right off the bat here and in your career here at Belmont, if you're trying to walk with Jesus, it's vital that you understand that the gospel is news rather than instruction. Because so many people think about Christianity and a relationship with God in terms of what they need to do. And it is true that there are things that Christians are supposed to do. But Christianity is first and foremost about what God has done before it's about what you need to do. In Christianity, the events are absolutely critical. A lot of other religions, the events, there's not historical events that really are crucial to whether the religion is true. There's teachings. In, G in Christianity, the teachings point to events. And if the events aren't true, the teachings are pointless. And the Bible makes that point over and over again. And one of the ways it makes it is by saying that this is the good news, the gospel. It's about something that happened. Christianity is first and foremost about something God did, not about how you should live. I often have this conversation with students over at Bongo Java, regular conversation I have, with students who've been raised in Christian settings. They come to Belmont and they're discouraged that they don't seem to be fired up for Jesus anymore. And they're not reading their Bible like maybe they used to when they were home and when they had a youth group and people that were always checking on them. Because, of course, you find out here in college, you can kind of have freedom to do what you want. And a lot of sort of what's been bubbling up in your heart sort of comes to fruition sometimes in college. A lot of people have been sort of towing the line with Christianity because of external pressure. And when they get to college, they find that, I don't really want to keep doing this. I've been reading my Bible for years. It just makes me more miserable and more frustrated. It happens all the time. So I'll meet these students sometimes, and they'll be like, you know, I really, I really, you know, they don't say it exactly this way, but this is what they're saying. I really want you to give me a good kick in the pants so I'll read my Bible again because that's worked before. You know, generally, you know, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was like, I need to find a Bible study like every two or three days because I can kind of get, a, get about two or three days, and then I'm sort of losing my energy, and I need another kick in the pants and, and we live that kind of that way, sort of that up and down sort of way. And what, what happens often is I'll, I'll talk to a student like that and I'll say, well, tell me this, first of all, before we even talk about what you're doing or you're not doing, what does it mean to be a Christian anyway? And, and they'll, they'll talk about, well, I think it means to try to read your Bible and try to witness to your roommate and it means not to party too much. And you know, it's always revealing that they say, try to do this and try to do that and try to do that because they know if they say it means to do this and do that and love the, your enemies or whatnot, they're convicted even by their own words because they're not doing it. So they try and reduce, lower the bar, means to try to do this, try to do that. And I usually respond something like, you know, I think your problem is you haven't got a clue about what Christianity really is all about. You're so connected and committed to doing, 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 doing. As a, a pastor friend of mine says, you're shooting all over yourself all the time. I should do this, and I should do that, and I should do this, and I should do that. And you're getting more and more miserable. And every time you read the Bible, it just tells you more stuff you need to do that you're not doing, and you feel terrible. But here's the thing. I didn't even ask you what do Christians do. Like, you didn't even hear the question I asked. Because you so think of Christianity as what I need to do. 
But what I asked is, what does it mean to be a Christian? And if there's not an answer about what it means to be a Christian, that it means to be somebody who Jesus set his love on before the foundation of the world, who came, took on flesh, lived a life among the broken people, died a terrible, torturous death on a cross so that we wouldn't have to, that he chose me to be his son or his daughter. He set his love upon me. He set his spirit in my heart. He sealed me for the day of redemption so that I'll live forever with him in a new heavens and a new earth. If, if you don't understand that that's what it means to be a Christian, well, no wonder, no wonder you don't want to read your Bible. See, you can read your Bible to find out all the stuff you need to do, and it will just discourage you. Or you can read the Bible to find out what God has done. And that, brothers and sisters, is the way to read the Bible. And that's what the good news is all about. And that's why it's vital that you understand the gospel is news before instruction. Because Christianity is about something you are because of what God has done before it's about what you need to do. So that's the first point. The second is it's God's gospel. And as much as your heart may want to say, well, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that God does it all. I want to, I want to do something because I want to be able to get some credit. And I want to be able to sort of have something to show for myself. I don't care. It's God's gospel, and you don't have the right to change it. And neither do I, as much as I would like to. I want to change it so that it suits me better. I want to change it so that you would like it better. But I can't do that. It's God's gospel, and it's about something that actually happened. I can't change what actually happened. You may not like the idea that God tortured his son on a cross, but that's what he did. That's what he did. Now, we're going to talk more about what that means and why that is the case. But that's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, that gets into this whole thing where Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that seems like a strange thing to say. There's, you know, why, why would he say that? And there are other places in the Bible that help us to understand that in his day, a lot of people thought the gospel was ridiculous. Two groups in particular. The Romans thought this good news that God had become uh, incarnate in, God, in Jesus and had lived and died a crucifixion and then had rose from the dead. They thought this is ridiculous. The Romans objected to that idea because they thought that power was what really mattered. For the Romans, it was all about power. And if you wanted to, to have any kind of um, honor in their eyes, you needed to be about power. So the Christians are proclaiming a religion led by a man who was crucified as a common criminal by the Romans. And the Romans weren't real impressed. Right? The Jews had a different problem with Christianity. For the Jews, it was all about being pure in the eyes of God. And there's a verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The problem with Christianity is Jesus was hung on a cross. And in Jesus' day, the Jews understood that reference in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, to be a reference to crucifixion. So the one thing that couldn't be true is that God's Messiah, God's chosen person to deliver them from all that was wrong with the world, could not possibly be somebody who was proven to be cursed by God because they were hung on a tree. How could God's Savior be somebody who was cursed? Now the Christian's answer to that was, well, you're right, he was cursed. But the key to understand, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, 
which if you go to Melissa and Patience's Bible study, you can learn more about. Or if, you, um, or if you read in Isaiah, this was even prophesied about in the Old Testament. The key to understand, yes, he was cursed, but he was cursed by God for, in the place of, sinners. And that makes all the difference in the world. So it is news that in the eyes of many people brings deep shame. And I would say in our day, there's another reason that it brings deep shame, and it's this idea that Christianity proclaims itself to be exclusive. And we don't like that. Again, we would much rather have an idea, uh, sort of a, a view where Christianity is just one of many religions, and they're all basically saying the same thing. And so in our day, the shame of Christianity, the reason that Paul would have to say, I guess, I am not ashamed of the gospel, is because the gospel excludes and includes. Again, there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, I mean, people will say, didn't Jesus basically teach all the things that everybody else said? I, I remember years ago when I was in college at Berkeley College of Music, a friend of mine saying, you know, I don't care about all this. You know, what really matters, Jesus, Hendrix, you know, John Lennon, they all said the same thing. All you need is love. And I remember, you know, I know Lennon said that, you know, John, not, uh, you know. And... Um, but I don't remember Hendrix saying that, though he probably did. Um, I've, I've seen enough videos and interviews with him that he probably ascribed to that idea too. But Jesus never said that. Jesus never said that. What makes Christianity unique is not what Jesus taught. Again, the teaching points to the events. And the events are what matter. The gospel is what matter. So here's the thing. Paul makes no bones about it. The gospel, the good news, God's gospel concerns a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And it doesn't matter whether people like that or not, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. Now, there are a lot of people, even people who are Christians or who call themselves Christians, who want to who tear that down, honestly. In this day and an age, the idea that Christianity centers around a bloody cross is not the most popular idea. A lot of people think that that just seems barbaric and old-fashioned, and who would believe those kind of silly notions? Surely we've evolved beyond that. But all I can tell you is when we get to the next section next week, you're going to find that the only answer to the problem of man is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Let me keep moving here. Now, a lot of people don't like the idea about doctrine. Let me just tell you, Paul has a lot of things to say about stuff that matters. I know a lot of people say doctrine divides, and you know, there's some truth to that. I think actually, the more you talk about what the Bible says about things, it tends to expose divisions that already exist. And, and you know, here's the thing. I don't think all the things Christians fight about matter at all, but the gospel of a bloody cross and an empty tomb matters. It matters. It's God's gospel. It's God's gospel. So what's so good about this gospel? What's so good about this gospel? Well, it meets your real need. I don't know, how many of you saw this, this article that's been floating around uh, people's Facebook status um, about fake Christians in college? Have you seen this? Anybody seen this article? Um, a professor at Princeton um, wrote a book called Almost Christian and wrote an article where she talks about this phenomenon of fake Christians. 
students who aren't really Christians, but they pretend to be Christians. Now, I think that's really interesting. I went to college in Boston, and I didn't really know any fake Christians up there. If I saw somebody who was dressed up to go to church on Sunday morning at Berkeley College of Music, you knew that they were a real Christian. <laughs> like, you just knew it. It was the Northeast, right? But, you know, when I first started working with students at Belmont, I actually, I don't know if people still do this. I don't know. I hope they don't. But when I first started working with students at Belmont about 15 years ago, I knew students that would actually dress up to go to the cafeteria on Sunday morning so that people would think they were going to church, Right? That's the difference. Maybe it still goes on. I don't know. But here, here's, here's the thing. Um, this lady, Kendra Creasy Dean, says this. She says, more American teenagers are embracing what she calls a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Translation, it's a watered-down faith that betrays God as a divine therapist whose chief goal is to boost people's self-esteem. Now, I will just tell you, most of the people that come to Belmont have had significant experience with Christians. The problem is, most of the experience they've had with Christians, and maybe most of the experience you've had with Christians, is preaching this watered-down therapeutic gospel, that God is in the business of making you feel better about yourself. But that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. The first thing that God tells you is that you deserve death and hell. <laughs> that's the first thing the gospel says. Not cheer up, cheer up. I, I always love this. Somebody said, you know, whenever angels appear in the Bible, they don't say, oh, cheer up, everything's, everything's fine. What do they say? They always say, fear not, because we have reason to fear. Now, again, if you're thoroughly, you know, embraced in the moralistic, therapeutic gospel, and you believe my God's not like that, my God exists so that I'll feel better about myself. You may not like what I'm saying, but all I can encourage you to do is read the Bible. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that there's a gospel, good news, about what God has done, and it changes everything. What's so good about it? And here's where we get into one of the most important words that I hope you'll come to understand through our study of Romans. It says in verse 17, in the gospel, there is a righteousness from God revealed. Now, I don't know if, if you've ever heard the story about Martin Luther and, you know, he, he had his faults for sure, right? I'm not ascribing just because I referenced Luther uh, in, in a positive way in one regard doesn't mean I ascribe to everything he ever said, okay? So you got that? But one of the things that he was really tormented by as he was wrestling, he was a monk, an Augustinian monk living in the 1500s in Germany. He was trying to understand why Paul could say that it was good news to have a righteousness of God revealed. How can that possibly be good news? Because as he knew himself to be not righteous, he has not living and thinking the way God wanted him. He knew that. So he's looking at this and he's saying, Where, what in the world is Paul talking about that it could be good news that God's righteousness is revealed? That's the worst possible news. Like Martin Luther is basically saying, the, the thing I hope and pray for every day is that God's righteousness would not be revealed. Because if his righteousness is revealed against the sin and the wickedness of this world, it's over. So how can Paul think that a righteousness of God being revealed is good news? And then he realized that it's not a righteousness of God. It's a righteousness from God. That the good news is not just that God proclaims his righteousness, but that he gives his righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? 
it's important for you to understand it's not merely forgiveness. I think a lot of Christians believe half a gospel. They believe that basically they're in need of forgiveness. So they come to Jesus and he wipes their slate clean and now they get a fresh start. And I don't know, if you're like me, maybe you kind of go through that experience about every month. <laughs> you know, where you, you know, okay, I've screwed up again. I need to come back to Jesus and ask forgiveness again and get another fresh start. And this time, God, I really, 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 really mean it, right? And after a while, you don't even believe yourself. A lot of Christians are sort of thinking that the only thing that they get from God is forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, when it says that a righteousness from God is revealed, it means something much more and much more beautiful than that we get forgiveness. Forgiveness means that your debt has been wiped clean, that you no longer owe a debt. But God said that the, what we need to be in a right relationship with him is to love him with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And I don't care how many fresh starts you get. We're never going to do that. Some people, you know, describe the good news of the gospel this way. Let's say, let's pretend that God has a book and everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever dreamed, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said is written down in that book. And when you become a Christian, the good news of the gospel is that when you open up your book, it's wiped clean and all that stuff is gone. But I have to tell you, that's not the gospel, and that's not what Paul is talking about here. See, what the gospel, the good news that we really celebrate in Christianity, is that Jesus has a book as well. And everything that Jesus did, and everything that Jesus thought, and every tear that Jesus shed was written down in that book. And when you become a Christian, guys, you don't just get a blank book. The covers get switched, and you get Jesus' book. And if you are in Christ by faith, what the Bible says about you is that God looks at you as he looks at his own son. And we know what he thinks about how his son lived because on the very end of Jesus' life, his father spoke from heaven audible words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Do you believe if you're a Christian, that God is well pleased with you? Or do you believe that he's continually disappointed by you? If you don't understand that you have the righteousness, that you get credit for everything that Jesus did, that you're seen as beautiful in God's sight because he sees you as doing everything that he ever asked for from the heart. Do you understand that? That's what it means to have this righteousness from God revealed. Now, as Romans goes through, you're going to find out how this happens. But what Paul is saying right here, right now, is that in the gospel, we get righteousness from God. That if you're a Christian, he looks at you as somebody who's as beautiful as his own dear son because you've done everything that he ever wanted from the heart. Now, I know that's not true of you. I know that's not who you actually are. But if you're a Christian and you put your hope in Jesus, that's what Christianity teaches. That what Jesus did on the cross, the good news that is the gospel, is that that can be true of you. And that changes everything. 
It means that you're not just continually trying to start over again and trying by your own willpower to keep in God's good graces and keep him smiling at you. It means that his smile is secured. We sang about it in one of these hymns. I don't know if you, if you picked up on this. In verse 4 of Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. It's a wonderful old hymn. I know we sing some hymns to new tunes like that one. But it's an old hymn written by John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and probably other hymns that you've heard of. And it says this, Let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. In other words, mercy's storehouse. God in his mercy has a storehouse for you. And in the gospel, grace and justice are both fully satisfied. The next line says, When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. In other words, when, when, you, when you put your hope in Jesus, he doesn't just look at you and say, okay, let's see how you do this time. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm going to cut you a break. I'm going to give you a fresh start. Let's see, if you can, let's see if you can live the life, walk the walk, and talk the talk this time. No. If your hope is in Christ, justice smiles. It's fully satisfied. It's fully satisfied. That's what's so good about the gospel. We get so much more than forgiveness. One of my favorite um, stories about a guy who understood this was a guy named um, Dixon, David Dixon. He was a Scottish pastor who lived back in the 1600s. And when he was on his deathbed, one of his friends asked him, how is it with your soul? And he said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I fled from both of them to Jesus, and in him I have peace. The reason so many Christians are absolutely miserable is they don't know how to flee from their good deeds. They're hoping that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds. They're hoping that their good deeds are going to show God that they really, really do love him. But listen, the only thing that will secure the smile of God for you is the life and death of Jesus. He could have died as an infant, and died a death as a substitute to pay for your sin and to wipe away your debt. But he lived 33 years suffering to obey God and love him from the heart. And it got progressively harder the longer he lived. Can you imagine what it's like to not give in to temptation for 33 years and to get more and more difficult? Especially as he hung on a cross and every bit of him screamed, you don't have to do this. When his friends, like Peter said, you don't have to go to the Jerusalem and suffer and die. He said, get behind me, Satan. Right? He knew those temptations and he faced them and he didn't shrink back. He obeyed God to the very end from the heart. And if you're a Christian, you get credit for that. Do you know what it's like to be able to lift your eyes and look God in the face, so to speak, and know that he smiles at you? You don't have to grovel before him? That's the good news that Paul's talking about. That's the good news that revolutionized the world in the first century. And that's the good news that Romans is all about. Well, who needs to hear this good news? Three groups of people in particular. First, those who are world famous for their faith. I love this little thing in verse 8. Paul talks about how your faith is being reported all over the world. And then he proceeds to write the longest explanation of the gospel 
the basic gospel that you find in anywhere in the New Testament. This is the longest letter in the New Testament. It is the longest explanation of what God did in Jesus, and he writes it to people who are literally world famous for their faith, which means I don't care how well you think you understand what I've been talking about. I don't care how long you've been a Christian or how many great, wonderful things you do. You need the gospel just as much as I do, just as much as the Romans who were literally world famous for their faith did. In fact, it's religious people, religious insiders who feel they've got all this stuff down and they know all the right answers, those are the people who really, really need to hear the gospel again. So that's, that should include some of you in this group. Then there's another group that needs to hear this. People that are wondering, what is Christianity all about anyway? And, and here at Belmont, I'd say there's probably two, two ver- versions of that. One are the people who've grown up in Christianity and are really wondering if all this stuff is just a bunch of nonsense. And maybe you don't think that yet, but let's see how you fare at the end of your first year and after you go through religion classes and sociology and psychology and all kinds of things, freshman seminar. And you may begin to really wonder, how do I even know what Christianity is about? Is what I've been told really what it's about? Here's the reason you need to study the book of Romans. Paul says, this is what Christianity is about. This gospel of God is what the prophets testify to. This is what God had promised beforehand the prophets. This is the heart of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. This is it. If you want to really understand what Christianity is, even though it may, I don't know, it may differ from things you've heard. But let's look at Romans because this is the heart. When I was really wrestling as a, as a senior in college with all my different friends who had different ideas about what the Bible was about, it was the book of Romans that helped me. I remember sitting down and deciding that I would kind of go through the book of Romans with two colored highlighters. And with one color, see I had all these friends who were saying, well, you know, it's all about God's grace. And then I had other people saying, no, it's really about, all the, it's about what you do and about how you need to do this and need to do that. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to go to the book of Romans because the book of Romans is Paul just laying out, here's what the gospel is, not necessarily responding to problems. There's other letters where there's a particular problem that's being addressed, and so that might skew the answer. But Romans is him just laying it out there. So I'm going to take one color highlighter, and I'm going to underline everything that has to do with God's grace, and I'm going to underline everything having to do with what we're supposed to do with the other color. And it was absolutely amazing to me. When I got done that, it took about three or four hours, and you would find it a useful exercise, I assure you. Um, I got to the end of that, and I was like, oh, the gospel and God's grace is the heart of Christianity. Yes, there are things, responses we need to make, but the heart of it is the gospel, and Romans is so good. So if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is, maybe you've never been around Christians, you've never heard much about Christianity, this is a great place to start. Maybe you have been around Christians, and you're more confused than you ever were, this is a good place to come. And then um, there are those um, people who don't get along very well with others. And that might be some of you guys too. Do you know in the last five to ten years that the student affairs departments at every university spend tons and tons of money doing all kinds of testing on you guys to try to hopefully put you with roommates who you won't hate? Like one of their biggest problems, they spend tons of money training student affairs staff and RAs how to resolve student conflicts because nobody knows how to get along anymore. I I mean, they they make eHarmony look like child's play, the kind of research they do on you guys to try to put you with people you might get along with. 
because it's a, it's a huge problem. Now, in Paul's day, the Jews and the Gentiles, even though they're both in the church, they don't like each other very much. And so what does Paul do? He writes them the longest explanation of the gospel that you find anywhere in the Bible. Why? Because generally, the reason you're so hard to get along with is because you're trusting in things other than Jesus, and any time that trust is threatened or exposed, you lash out. I know this because Paul says in the letter to the Galatians that you people that used to love each other when you really understood the gospel, now that you've lost the goodness of the gospel and you've lost your joy, you're biting and devouring one another. One of the best ways to know whether you understand the gospel is how do you relate to other people, right? And even as I say that, I'm convicted because I've been fighting with my wife a lot. This is why I need to preach the, the Romans, right? If your righteousness is something that you feel you have to come up with to offer up to God, it will make you insecure. The thing you're trusting in will always make you insecure, and you will try to guard that with your life. So if you can't get along with other people, you might need to hear the gospel too. So how big is it? I think it's, it's big. The, the, the uh, last point I'll make is this. Back in the very beginning, he says that his, his role is to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. And guys, that little phrase is huge. Because many people who've been raised as Christians think that the only way to motivate themselves or to motivate other people is to pour guilt and shame upon them. But what is Paul talking about? The obedience that comes from faith. He's talking about a completely different way to relate to God. I'll just close with this story. A friend of mine, pastor, is down in Franklin named Scott Rowley. One time had a guy come into his office who'd been attending the church for a while and, and said, you know, wanted to meet with the pastor. So he meets with Scott and he says, look, you know, I'm really interested in, in Jesus and all this stuff, but I just can't get over the idea. And I just, I just can't, I can't get on board with this idea that I have to tell people about Jesus to be saved. Like I, just, I, I, just, I just don't want to tell people about Jesus. And I, you know, I don't like that I have to tell people about Jesus to be, to be a Christian. And Scott said, you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus to be a Christian. I mean, Christians, you know, hopefully do that, but that's not like the thing you have to do so that God will love you. You don't have to do that. So the guy leaves. About two weeks later, another mutual friend of theirs says to Scott, he says, man, what did you tell that guy? Scott's like, what do you mean? It's like, ever since he met with you, he's telling everybody he knows about Jesus. <laughs> so Scott calls him back into his office, says, Okay, what gives? Last time we were here, you were like, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. And the guy says, well, Scott, when you told me that I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for God to love me, I just had to tell everybody. Do you see the difference? The reason most people don't tell people about Jesus is they don't want to bring anybody else into the misery that they're experiencing because they think God is constantly disappointed with them. But when you know that Jesus lived and died in your place that there's a bloody cross and an empty tomb that can count for you. That's a news worth sharing. That's a news worth singing about. That's good news. Good news, right? And it changes everything. Changes everything. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing one more song.